We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle six, um, explicit democratic decisions shall be made as to what is in and what is out of the commons. Great. Okay. And I suppose the first thing there is, what are we talking about with regards to the commons? What is it? We're talking about aspects of life and Often the easiest way to explain this is common land Mm. because that's where the concept came from. So here is a piece of common land which is open to everyone to use and in those days when there weren't that many people around, everyone used it and got on. But then what can happen is as more and more people start to use it, then you get overuse Mm. of those resources and unfair use. And that that gets us to the famous tragedy of the commons. And I've got this quote from William Lloyd, 1833, which I think was a time of fairly extreme population growth. Certainly Ireland, previous to the famine, which I think is 1847, was 8 million. It's now 5 million, to give you an idea. And so the common land was very heavily used. And William Lloyd framed this very well. He said, for each additional animal, a herder could receive additional benefits while the whole group shared the resulting damage to the commons. If all herders, and I suppose this is the point that relates to our time now, if all herders made this individually rational economic decision, the common could be depleted or even destroyed to the detriment of all. And in a way, that tragedy is what is happening to the planet in terms of its capacity to support humanity and all sorts of interests in all sorts of ways have just competed for and used natural resources and indeed used the world as a dumping ground Mm. and we've now got to the point where depletion but also pollution is meaning that the commons, the totality of the biosphere is becoming a tragedy. Mm. Yes, indeed. So that, I suppose that frames our, our entire podcast projects. But in particular, this idea of treating the biosphere as our common life support system is a good way of looking at the drifts in policymaking over the last several decades. Um, yeah, And I think that the contrast with commons that is important for us to look at is this idea of 
enclosure. Would you like to talk a bit about what enclosure is, how it was then in the 19th century and what it is now in the 21st century? Interestingly, there's a whole raft of literature now and understanding and analysis in relation to the commons because the commons goes much wider than just land, and we'll come back to that. What happened was that in some respects you could say there was good reason because the commons were getting exploited. They weren't being managed in the way in which they can be. Again, we'll come back to that. So they were getting exploited and it's like, well, are there better ways of using the commons rather than letting, if you like, everyone pile in? If there were private ownership, if there was state ownership, which allocated slices of the commons to various people, then they would get better managed. And that certainly has, well, not just theoretical support, but you can go back and see how that has worked. I think in particular that was a feature in Scotland in the modern period. The motivation there, the landed gentry saw all of this available land and thought, ah, rather good if we could um, grab hold of that. Mm. So what they did was to pass an act of parliament that said, we're taking control of this tract of land and it's been given to Mr so-and-so. Mr. So-and-so would often be the MP that was proposing the act or a friend of the MP. And you will see, I mean, there's an estate around here called the Mostyn Estate, which is still pretty vast, Mm. which actually is, in effect, stolen land. It was stolen from the people. But that idea that you can go and grab a piece of something and it might be land, it might be lots of other things, enclose it, hence the term enclosures, and then get rents out of it, is now in effect writ large. And you can see that in intellectual property, you can see that in aspects of fishing, you can see that in water, you can see that in knowledge, Mm -hmm. in the urban world, in the judicial world. And it's become so venal that we the citizens get excluded from this enclosed area and if we want to use that enclosed area then we have to pay a rent a charge well i was just thinking that the enclosure of land is what led to what you might call the market society where individuals were commodified by virtue of from the moment of birth effectively having to pay a rent on life itself and so you had a system where there were rent payers and rent takers you know you're you're sitting there you're a business if if you can create a monopoly Mm. and enclose that monopoly and prevent others getting into it then you can make super profits so your relation or our relationship with a google or with an apple that in effect has enclosed a piece of space that you're in effect forced to use because of all the technological tie-ups that sort of shove you in that direction, then you can make excessive profits out of it. This is an area where I suppose we're, we're kind of getting into what what are the contemporary commons that we need to focus on? Clearly, the biosphere is the main one, but I'm not sure how in reality an individual citizen can engage on the biosphere as a commons in the way that a government can. Whereas you have other commons like, for example, open source 
software, which have been shown to be great generators of value and can work symbiotically with profit-making companies. Yeah, and it just emphasizes the point that the commons is not just a fairer way of doing things. It also engages us socially mm. in its management, in its use, and we feel part of it. We have an entitlement to it, but we also have a responsibility for it. But it's often the best way to limit the use of natural resources to ensure long-term economic viability. So in other words, it's not just as nice to have. Mm. Actually, if we're thinking about this in terms of the future sustainability of the planet, let alone our own localities, then it's actually better than allowing a market free for all, which almost certainly ends up with market enclosures and better than the state running it. Mm. This is reminiscent so, of David Attenborough's idea that fish stocks, for example, can be maintained if a third of fishing grounds are reserved as a kind it, of environment for fish stocks to be kept high. Yeah, exactly. I think we all want fish stocks mm. to survive and be maintained and be sufficient. How can we best do that? Well, as he says, we need to reserve a third of the fisheries that are unfished. So that's a governmental action. I mean, at a local level, if you take somewhere like Bologna, which has introduced mechanisms for, in effect, local management of commons. So the council has set up the framework, but then it works with and alongside citizen groups to manage parks, for example, mm. or other open spaces or other common facilities like libraries and so on. And so th these citizen groups already have an interest in these things, but are encouraged to take some responsibility for these things with some support from the city council. There are people who live around that park and use that park and value that park and, of course, use it socially as well. And the council sets up the organisation. Mm. And it's a particularly famous and excellent woman called Ellen Ostrom, mm who studied the commons in all sorts of ways in various countries around the world. And it's also worth saying that this is the oldest form of management of resources that is known. And she got a Nobel Prize for this, but she specified eight rules that you need in order to run that successfully. I mean, I could run through one or two of them. I think that would be a good idea, um, yeah, because I think that the, yeah, there's so, a logic around this commons. And also you have this word commoning that you see cropping up as an active part of it, that people through commoning can achieve better results from their commons using yeah. Ostrom's design principles. So let's let's go through a couple of those. Yeah. I mean, the first clearly defined boundaries and who is entitled access to what. Mm. Um, there's a specified community of benefit and we need to be clear about that. It's very systemic, the rule, yeah. Yeah, the rules, interestingly, um, should fit local circumstances. Mm. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to common resource management and the rules should be dictated by local people and local ecological needs. Participatory decision-making is vital. 
you need a really good system of conflict resolution mm. because inevitably conflicts arise. You know, do you want to be charging off to a court to do this or do you want to manage this locally? You need to monitor, once again, the principle of feedback. You need to monitor what's going on in the commons. How well are they working? How well are the rules being observed? Commons don't run on goodwill, but on accountability. Also, there should be sanctions for people who abuse the commons, but they should be graduated. Mm. You don't just say, right, you've broken the rules, we're going to ban you. Um, That creates resentment, a system of warnings and fines, as well as informal reputational Mm. consequences. And that's really about maintaining the fabric of the community as well, isn't it? Very much so. And often the commons, the notion that they're nested within larger frameworks. Mm. I mean, if you just take the Bologna one, then that's nested. And, And there'll be lots of these citizen groups within Bologna, but it's nested within the local government framework. And of course, that local government framework has to work. And if we go to the other extreme and think about fisheries, then there has to be some global governance in relation to that that then works through national governments and into various fishing industries. So those are, well, actually, I think we've covered most Mm. of the rules. What she found in her research was that where the commons work really, really well, those rules are in place. That's right. She did Swiss mountain meadows and Japanese mountain meadows that both... Uh, scored very well in those terms. And then I think in contrast to that, the uh, irrigation in Spain and irrigation in the Philippines wasn't working quite so well. The two seem to have very interesting things to say about each other, both the the meadows study and the irrigation study. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the water one in Spain in action where these irrigation channels Mm. that come down miles and miles and miles with fresh water and and the rules are that you can take your fresh water for an hour a day and you know, it's sort of sequential so house one is i don't know one till two and house two is two to three oh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. but then that gets screwed up if people break the rules by okay, I'm going to take it from one till three, or I'm going to take your time slot because I've just run out. And the problem there was that there were no sanctions, there was no means for conflict resolution in place that meant the rules were probably observed by everyone. Well, it's interesting because one of her principles was that, or I don't know if it was a principle, but certainly an observation was that systems that have been working for many, many generations works better than the new systems and i'm thinking that you know the irrigation obviously is so ancient you know you have these canats in the middle east and north africa where water is tunneled out from the water table and then comes out along a long channel to a town and the, these have been going on for several millennia at this stage and clearly they must have similar structures around them that keep everybody happy within a given community Yeah, absolutely. Probably just worth chucking in immediately. There's some good videos that we put on the show notes. Yes. One by David Boiler, who makes the point that most law firms are within the law firm are the commons because they are self-organizing. They are partnerships. That's right. But going wider than that, you think about, well, I mean, air Mm. (laughs) is, is the biggest 
commons of all, and it's a commons that we've not been managing because we've been polluting it like mad. Yeah. There's pastures. But then there's things like open source software, Wikipedia, social media platforms, blockchain, the BBC are modern forms of the commons. And indeed, you might think of drugs mm. as well, because there is something which is a resource that we all need access to, but actually is enclosed yeah. uh, by the pharmaceutical companies. But it's interesting how many of these things have grown up recently with the dawn of the internet. And, you know, on the one hand, you get operating software, which is developed by a company, Microsoft or Apple, and then in effect enclosed and rents are charged. But then along comes Linux, mm. um, where a group of good citizens decided they're rather fed up with this and so establish some open source software which anyone can use and i think you've made the point philip that that is then something that spurs creativity and innovation because you get an immediate contact and communication between the developers and the users but the users are giving feedback and fairly quickly the developers are responding to that feedback rather than having to wait for the latest update, um, which may well not work or indeed go backwards. This is interesting, um, and, and Boiler makes an interesting point actually on that, that some things generate more value as commons than in an enclosed form. And I think we've mentioned this already, but as a means of defining what might be in or out of the commons, because it's sort of on the face of it, it looks like your principle that this should be decided democratically does sort of seem to be about property, for example. Whereas yeah. really, it, that sort of frames it in the wrong space. It's really more about what is value generating, what generates yeah. value in the best way, either through private ownership or through common ownership. We've been trained, haven't we, that it's the market, it's the market, that's the best way, it's the market, it's the market. Well, certainly since the 80s, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yes. And this commons thing, it's all rather backward and it's not creating massive profits on stock markets and so on. So it really can't possibly work as well. The reality is that that's a con. Mm. and Everyone has been conned. And we've been pushed further and further away from the use of resources or facilities or whatever it may be that work better if they're in the commons. Well, I mean, um, this is another case of where, you know, just as there are 50 shades of, of capitalism, you know, you could say the same about communism in a way that you, these things are no longer, uh, you know, either or but they're, they're rather case-specific to how the logic of either one might be used. In certain environments, you need to, to look after your private interests, but that doesn't mean that you can't have community interests as well. Absolutely, to both. You know, you, you've got your house, garden or whatever, and that's yours to look after. It's your private space. But as soon as you come out of your house, and indeed when you're in your house, there's, there's an awful lot of things which are common resources. So it's not an either or, it's very much a both. There's a bloke called Tim Hollow that's uh, written a lot on commoning. Yes. And this comes back to a point that you raised earlier on. 
and he goes on to argue that this raises a central question for a system of governance based on the commons. Essentially, there are bits of it here and there, but but I mean, essentially, it has that system of governance, you know, has to be sort of forced into the prevailing systems today. How does the system of governance based on the commons? How does government support what needs to be led from within the community itself? Indeed, how do we reclaim politics, re-enfranchise ourselves when the very concept of politics is currently on the nose? And I think that statement brings us right into focus with the world's a mess, the political systems are a mess, governing systems, government is a mess. Well, we are going to have to think about these things like the commons and work out how we would like to organize them Mm. because you know the chances of that coming from governments that are stuck in their bubbles those chances are fairly remote yes yeah no i was thinking of uh, you know how for example there's a a local park here in in st albans where you know there's the friends of the wick so the park is called the wick and there are a group of interested people who have been coming together for a long time to to preserve the nature reserve part of this uh, open space from yeah. the kind of uh, increasing amounts of dog walkers who've been making the, the entire area very trodden down. And I was chatting with one of them and said, you know, I suppose, you know, what would be great would be to have an elevated walkway, which would allow the wildlife and plant life to grow and spread underneath without being damaged. And of course, they came back saying, oh, well, you know, the problem there is that the council, you know, they won't fund it. And I thought, well, that's fair enough. The council probably won't fund it. But then there are other ways. If enough people want something, there are other ways of, of getting it, you know, like fundraising and so on. And part of the problem there is that because all of local government finance in the UK is raised through general taxation, uh, which goes up to central government and then central government sends it back to local government, local governments don't have the funding powers. Mm. So you there in St Albans don't actually have the choice to say, we would like the council tax to increase in order that we can bring some resources to bear on that particular park and local government then doing what Bologna is doing and setting up the governance framework so that these conflicts that are arising can be managed and then we could all use this park and it won't get chewed up. But it's absolutely critical that funding decisions can then be made locally. Only 1% of total taxation is raised locally in the UK. In Germany, for example, it's 16%. Mm. And this is yet another one of those things where the system we have has forced all sorts of consequences that aren't good for us. And actually, people are quite capable of making decisions and trade-offs. Mm. Well, that, that brings us very directly back to constitutions, doesn't it? Since it's rather ironic that the German constitution was set up in part by British and Americans after the war and has been, as you've said before, so uh, remarkably successful. 
and indeed the Japanese constitution also. And one of the points you made about that was that it involved the flattening of their existing institutions. So there was a renewal, and despite whatever was lost, there was the opportunity to redesign the institutions, whereas flattening British institutions, I think, would be quite a challenge. I wonder how easy it would be to rebuild our constitution to include that direct federal-type engagement. And federal in its broadest sense, in that, you know, it's not just about countries, Mm. it's about cities and towns and counties having many more powers to decide what they want to do themselves. What we need to do is understand and grasp that if we're going to get out of the situation that we're in, we need to change the constitution. And I think that actually a very good route, a very direct route is through commons in whatever form they take, insofar as there is this element of entitlement, which one of the things about entitlement in this regard is the importance of as people would say in university, use the facilities of actually finding out what those things are, how they work, how they relate to you. And clearly the commons is a good forum through which to explore that. Yeah. And um, another quote from Hollow, a vital part of the equation here is to ensure that local community activities are linked to the systemic political goal. Mm. Participating in a local buy nothing group, for example, what's a buy nothing is group? a non. Well, you essentially buy nothing. <laughs> um, you barter, you exchange, uh, you take an explicit decision that actually you got plenty enough clothes and you don't need to buy any more clothes, which actually is the case for virtually all of us. And you're making a statement about you and your lifestyle. So it's a way of, of avoiding the, the money economy, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the pollution and CO2 and all the rest of it that that involves. Participating in a local buy nothing group, for example, is a non-capitalist act which supports the local community and reduces environmental pressures. But it only becomes a truly transformative act when explicitly and directly connected to the greater whole. So buy nothing groups and indeed open source groups or whatever they happen to be, linking up with each other and then creating a political shift Mm. that says, and now we want a different kind of politics and indeed the politics needs to focus on the constitution. I I seem to remember that Hollow had quite a good definition of, of what a commons can be for our purposes. And he says it's a combination of a resource plus a community plus, and this is where Ostrom comes in, a set of social protocols. So say that again, so it's a resource. It's a, a commons is a combination of a resource plus a community plus a set of social protocols. And I'd like to just quickly put that back to back with a, a point that David Boiler makes, um, that not all of the value yielded by a commons is measured financially. So that, you know, you have these spaces that you use and you get value from, that you know, it doesn't come to you in money terms, in measurable terms, or for example, with the um, open source software, you know, people get benefit by engaging with a community, by getting experience in coding, and so on. Exactly, and the, you know, how how much better and how much nicer to have that experience than simply to have a consumerist transactional experience where you just buy something, but actually there is no sense of community 
and no sense of social interaction, social engagement. Well, that's the backbone it, of it, consumerism, isn't it? The, the illusion that you're not consuming from another person, that you're just sort of getting this stuff as if yeah. for free, as it were. Yeah, it's entirely anonymously. And it's the height of individualism. Mm. It loses so much in its form of transaction. And we've all been schooled that that's the way to behave. Well, it's not the way to behave. We need to behave in different ways. And with all the pressures that are around, and you think about a river, you think about water. So if you think about the third pole, as the Chinese call it, which is the Himalayas yes, yes, and the Great the Chinese government has worked out that with all the melting that's going on, their future water supplies are threatened because an awful lot of their fresh water comes from those glaciers mm. that flows down the rivers and so on. China's response to that problem was certainly not collective or indeed communist mm. or indeed in any way fraternal. It was simply to invade Tibet and say, okay, we've now preserved our water supplies. Wow, I hadn't realised that was the logic. Interesting. You can see in that the seeds of water wars, mm. um, and water is becoming an increasingly scarce resource, the seeds of water wars are being sown there. I mean, unless we're going to have a load of wars, um, we need to step back from that and say, well, how collectively can we manage water? Here is a river basin with all sorts of competing interests and uses mm. and so on in that river basin. And this is happening to an extent around the world. How can we preserve that? Indeed. So this is where I think that on so many levels, this exploration of the commons is absolutely fascinating. And there's plenty more, which we'll put on, as we've said, in, in the show notes. I think it's a good time now, Ed, to look forward to the next, not just the next episode, but the next section of this series, because we're now getting away from biosphere and people, which has been the umbrella for the last six, including this one. And we're getting into democracy and subsidiarity. Now, do you want to just quickly, I think a lot of people have an idea of what they think democracy might be, but probably not so many people are familiar with subsidiarity. So, this section is saying, okay, we've sorted out the, the overriding principles in relation to biosphere and people, and the last of which being the commons. And now we're moving on to how do we want to organise democracy? The word subsidiarity, I mean, a lot of people would use decentralisation or devolution. The reason I don't like that and the reason I prefer subsidiarity is because if you talk about decentralization, devolution, it's essentially couching it in terms that everything is centralized, first of all. Yes. Yeah. And then we decentralize. And that's the mindset. I mean, go back to Switzerland, where they started was that actually there were 26 cantons, 26 local areas of government. Yeah. And if they were going to come together to form one nation and a federation, then there were certain powers that were going to be allowed to go, if you like, upwards or to the centre. Right. So democracy um, and subsidiarity is this thing of, if we go back to principle, I think, number two, that all the power resides in the people. So with that as a premise, yeah. we're saying, OK, well, then from there, 
we get into these next few principles, the first of which, uh, would you like to read out number seven? Yeah, um, number seven is quite simply, elections shall be representative, um, which basically means having a good system of proportional representation. Great. Uh, well, I look forward to getting on to that next week. That'll be exciting to, to set up a new chapter of this. Ed, we're there. Thanks, I think we did well. Right. Great. Okay. It's, uh, it sometimes feels it's more of, a, more of a struggle rather than less of a struggle. But yeah, and then I listen to it and uh, yeah, it's okay. <laughs>